Hello and welcome to, God, what's this podcast called? I think it's the Yeah, Nah, but I could be wrong. Thank you. No, I, I'd totally forgotten. I, I'd just been reading your Zap articles and I had Zap podcast in my head, but that is definitely not right. Okay, welcome to the Yeah, Nah podcast. I can't believe I actually forgot the name of our podcast. Craig, please come start. back. Please come back. <laughs> the boat is sinking. Um, I am I am Mark Honeychurch and I am joined tonight by Bronwyn. Yara. And Katrina filling in for Craig. Yara. And tonight we have joining us James Kerr from uh, the Wellington Skeptics in the Pub. How are you doing, James? Oh, not too bad, and you? Not too bad. Is that is that as much as I can get? Come on. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm good. I think I've I've drunk as we were talking about before we started recording half a can of Muscle Farm Combat Energy Cola, so I'm feeling a little bit wired. Apparently is one it, can's got about three cups of coffee in it. Is it made with real muscles? <laughs> I hope not. I'm a vegetarian. It better not have any muscles in it. I'm in trouble. Are you a vegetarian or are you a pescatarian? Because it could be the other sort of muscles. Oh, I yeah, good point. No, I am fully vegetarian, but not vegan. I'd love to be vegan, but it just seems like way too much effort. And then I'd have to go and tell everybody about it, right? I'd have to be one of those people that annoys everyone else saying you should be vegan it's really good to be vegan you're killing animals well at least it wouldn't impact your uh, beer choices because i think it's stout that used to be made with um some parts of the fish uh, is it fish eyeballs is that the finings or something i don't know but yes yes there were beers that aren't vegetarian there's also cheeses that aren't even vegetarian it's it's a minefield but anyway we we have some really interesting topics to talk about and I'm hoping that we can get through them in under two hours, because I think while Craig's been away, the length of the podcast has been increasing. Um, this is the third one we've had this year without Craig, and I reckon we're probably going to manage two hours today, which is just silly because I'm the one that has to edit it while Craig's away. So it, I'm just causing myself more work. But without further ado... We're going to carry on with our first topic of tonight, which is a topic I am really interested in. And I, I don't even know what to think about it, but universal basic income. Now, James, would it be all right? Um, could you give us a quick primer of what a universal basic income is? Sure. So the basic premise of a universal basic income is that instead of having a welfare system that works the way ours or basically every developed countries does, where the government provides a specified amount of money to people under certain circumstances. Like if you don't have a job, you get this much money. If you have some injury or disability that prevents you from working, you get some different amount of money. Uh, maybe there's a different amount if you've got children, that kind of a thing. The idea is you get rid of all of that and you just replace it with everybody, whether they're working or not, no matter how old or young they are, gets given a fixed amount of money every week or fortnight or whatever, and you just get that money no matter what. So the universal basic income is, is one of those systems that I guess tries to simplify tax schemes. So like just having a standard income tax that's flat, this one is just the same amount of money for everybody. And I guess for the people on lower incomes, it makes a bigger difference as a percentage. It's really useful to them, but it's kind of a drop in the ocean almost for someone who's making a lot of money already, right? 
Yes. Um, so it's simpler to administer. It also has the advantage of you don't have a bunch of disadvantaged people needing to go to applied bureaucracies and fill out lots of paperwork and so on. It's just they get this amount of money as a matter of simple right. So that makes life much easier for them. Uh, it's got some advantages from an incentive standpoint, too, in that if you pay people only if they don't have a job, it could encourage them to not look for work quite as much. Whereas if you pay people the same amount of money, whether they have a job or not, then you don't have that effect. Oh, okay. And is there something to be said for this simplification? Is there a lot of money that's spent on the complexities of dealing with taxes? I mean, in America, it just seems like an absolute mess, right? But it, it seems relatively simple over here. It is a lot simpler here. And I actually had a, a, a look at this when I was doing background research for the article, and the amount of money that the Ministry of Social Development gets to basically operate as an agency is about 1% of it, of what we spend on the actual welfare. So it won't save you very much money simplifying this, um, because the bureaucracy is, is much smaller than the thing it administers. Okay, so the other thing I like that you just said was the idea of it, I guess, giving dignity to people that they're not having to go and kind of beg for money, ask for money, they're not being put through the rigmarole of all these forms, it's just their right. Um, that does actually sound like an advantage I'd not actually heard before. Uh, yes, it's even led some people you wouldn't normally think of as being fans of this type of thing, like, say, Milton Friedman to advocate for the idea. He saw it as reducing government because it meant fewer people justifying themselves to government bureaucracies, even though it results in the government spending more money. Okay, so it seems like there are some benefits to it. And, and certainly the reason I kind of heard it was useful years ago was the idea of the robots are taking all our jobs and we don't want everybody to starve, so let's start giving them money. And I know, I know you definitely have thoughts on that and whether AI is going to take all our jobs. Yeah, maybe that's a conversation we can have another day. <laughs> it sounds like a big one. So it, it might be that a UBI is good. Quite possibly it will be eventually that a UBI is necessary. But the thing I brought to you a few months ago in Skeptics in the Pub was uh, it was a talk I'd been to at the local humanist group in Wellington about how a UBI is going to cost nothing, um, about how with a little bit of initial investment, once you've got the ball rolling and all the tax starts coming back, that actually the, the net cost um, after however many cycles with the velocity of money um, is going to be nothing, that, that after a while it basically pays for itself. And as soon as I talked to you about it, I think your, uh, your response was something like, that's not how it works, that's not how any of it works. Um, and then I asked you if you could kind of expand on that and write an article on it. So um, I was really happy that you did. And um, can you just go through basically why this idea, or what the idea is of this money coming back and why it's kind of not realistic? Okay, so this is a sort of claim that people make a lot for different policies. Um, this isn't UBI specific. Um, practically anybody who advocates spending a lot of government money is going to make the argument that it will pay for itself. That's true whether you're talking about spending it on welfare, spending it on infrastructure, spending it on tax cuts. People will say things like, oh, it'll pay for itself. And almost never is it true. The reason for that is that the way people usually look at this is they look at the money moving. And that's because in our day-to-day -day lives, we think of money and wealth as the same thing. But it's not really. 
What really matters in terms of how wealthy a country is, is its economic activity, basically the amount of stuff it can make, whether that stuff is uh, goods or services or whatever. So if you increase the amount of money moving around an economy, which running a huge deficit to pay for a universal basic income would absolutely do, you have more money. What you don't have is more stuff because that deficit didn't make a bunch more goods and services. It just moved a bunch of money around the country. And what that means is that the ratio of money to stuff will go up. We call that inflation. Okay, so a fixed amount of stuff, but more money means that the stuff is going to cost more money because one divided by the other. Yes, there is actually a famous macroeconomic equation that describes this. PY equals MV, which is to say that price levels times real income, because income is spelled with a Y in economics, equals uh, velocity times the amount of money. I mean, I, I do hear you're, you're right about this idea of there being um, all these great ideas where they talk about how it will pay for itself. But a lot of the time, what I hear is government doesn't put it in place because it doesn't pay for itself in the short term. So something like education, you know, every dollar spent on education will get six dollars back for the economy. But the trouble is that the government will only see this 20 years or 30 years down the line. So no government's going to spend the money now because it looks bad come the next election. Is that a real thing? Is that a problem that, you know, anything that has a short term gain is going to be enacted, but anything with a long term gain is harder to push through? I mean, that honestly depends. You know, this is more of a politics thing than an economics thing. But what it will boil down to is whether the public can be persuaded that the long-term benefit will show up or not. Like, if you can make the argument to people that, yes, it's going to cost us a bunch of money to put money into education, but we'll get all this return back later, and people are willing to go along with it, then you can probably make it happen. Governments do manage to invest in things with long time horizons from time to time, so it's not impossible. But sometimes, if you think it's going to be hard to persuade people that the benefits will actually arrive at some point in the foreseeable future, then, yeah, people may feel like it's a waste of money. But th this idea I saw from the talk that when you when you put money into a UBI, when you pay money out into a UBI to everybody, that eventually you get all the money back from taxes and that you can just keep rolling that through. That's just never going to happen. So I guess what's going to happen is if a, if a UBI is rolled out in this country, every year the government is going to have to put a significant amount of money into that to keep it happening. I guess it's the entire cost of whatever they're paying to people, right? If we ignore the fact that they're getting taxes back, they are going to still be putting in like the full cost of a UBI every year. Yes. You know, there may be some offsetting benefits. I did note that the, the paper you showed me did talk about potentially some other benefits, like if people suffer less health problems because, you know, some health problems are caused by poverty. So maybe you save the government some money that way. Uh, maybe it reduces crime. You might save some money that way. Those, I don't have any strong evidence on the specific claims made in that paper, which is why I didn't go into them. They're at least arguable. But given the magnitudes involved, it would be nearly impossible for them to actually add up to the whole price of the, of the package. So yeah, one of two things is going to happen. Either the government has to get that money some other way, either it needs to cut other services or it needs to raise taxes, 
both of which would have other social and economic effects. Or it's going to run a deficit, which is going to push inflation up, which would undermine the very benefit of the universal basic income because it would make all the goods and services those people are trying to buy more expensive. Okay, so this is the part of this talk where I'm going to ask you to get out your crystal ball. Um, now, from what I understand, top the opportunities party is behind the idea of a UBI, but I'm not sure anyone else is invested in this political party wise. What do you think the chances are that in the next 20, 30 years that any government will get something that looks like a UBI through and that I might be able to sit at home and be a stoner for the rest of my life? Well, I mean, in 20 to 30 years, you'll be getting superannuation, I would imagine, um, at which point you will be able to do that because, um, <laughs> you know, that's how superannuation works. But uh, in general, I personally don't think it's super likely. What we would need in order to make this policy work, and, you know, I'm sympathetic to the general idea of a UBI. You know, I wrote my article not as a, an argument against UBIs as such, but rather against the claim that they will pay for themselves. We would need significantly higher economic activity and lower costs of living. Those two things together, working over time, could eventually make it economical to implement a policy like this. Okay. Well, here's hoping that somehow we can figure out those two amazingly magical things at the same time. It sounds unlikely, but I I would like to think that maybe we get someone like that. The other thing, of course, though, is that I've 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 had a worry. So I've I've been to see Professor Guy Standing talking about UBIs before, and I've seen other talks about UBIs. And the one thing that concerns me is whenever these people who are trying to push UBIs around the world talk about pilot studies and little tests that have been done, maybe an area in India has, um, you know, some small county inside a state in India has tried the UBI, that the reporting I've heard is universally positive, that a UBI has done all these magical things and there are no problems with it. And and that just sets my sceptical alarm bells off ringing, right? That, you know, any, any policy that has no downside is like, hang on a minute. Yeah. I mean, the thing about a UBI is that, I mean, it's been the general consensus of, of economists who study welfare interventions and transfer payments to use the the economics jargon for this type of thing that a system that just gives people money is going to be better than something which you put a bunch of strings and conditions and so on you know if people are, can't afford food it's better to just give them money and let them buy food than try and give them food directly as a rule I can well believe that the results are largely positive there is a downside really but that downside is the cost it's like, yes, giving people money pretty much has no downsides if you ignore the part where it costs money. I guess the other thing with that that I've always been worried about, you know, hearing about these little case studies is the the scaling up, right? That you might be able to show that something even is economically viable at a, a village scale. But then if you then explode it out to an entire nation, things become very different, I'd imagine. Uh, it sure does. I worked out that if you wanted to give everybody um, in New Zealand the equivalent of the after-tax job seekers benefit, the unemployment benefit or the dole, to use the old terminology, would cost a little over $90 billion a year. For a small country like New Zealand, that sounds like a lot. It, it is, because uh, New Zealand's total tax take in this financial year is expected to be $166 billion. Ouch. 
So yes. over half of the government's income. Now, now, is there a way that we can sort of do food bank rules here in the sense that rather than giving people necessarily all of that basic income, you can do something a little bit more efficient, like donating food? That would actually probably be less efficient, honestly. Okay. In general, it works better to give people money than it does to give them food. For one thing, you have to set up a whole bunch of logistics networks to handle this extra food that you're moving around, whereas the private sector has a full set of logistics systems for moving food around already. So you can just piggyback on those by sending people money directly. You know, and there's all sorts of like time issues. Like if you're going to give someone a bundle of food, they're going to have to go to some distribution center to pick it up. Whereas if you're just giving them money, then you can have IRD or the Ministry of Social Development just push the money into a bank account at the touch of a button. And I'd imagine when you're giving people food, you're then re-adding the complexity of people's dietary requirements and somebody might not like that type of spam. They've got their own favorite type of spam that they want. Yes, you will get all sorts of arguments about what kind of food is the right food for poor people to have. Um, you will start having arguments about people uh, like companies that make particular types of food, lobbying the government to include more of their type of food in the universal package. A lot of people look back with nostalgia on school milk, but a lot of that was actually just a subsidy to the agricultural sector. Wasn't there a campaign the aunties started a while ago, I think, on Twitter? The aunties are a group of women who collect um, food and other things to help women in need. I think domestic violence and things like that. And I think their campaign was no more effing tin tomatoes, um, because that's the standard thing people think. It's, it's cheap and it's good for making a lot of basic food. So obviously poor people need tin tomatoes. And I, I think a lot of these food banks just get swamped by tin tomatoes. And, and that's the thing. It's like if you give your food bank money, they know what they need to buy with it. Almost certainly they know better than you do because they have all that direct experience with people in need. So there's a lot to be said for give the food bank money instead of give the food bank food. And with that, dear listeners, please all go out and give money to your local charity. All the skeptics, actually. Give money. to We're a charity. Give us money. Join us. Pay, pay your yearly membership fee and you will feel really good about yourself. When, how much is that membership fee there, Mark? Do you want to give that plug? Just finish that off, round up the package? $40 a year or $60 for a family membership, I think. This is off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure that's what it's set at. It is dirt cheap. It really is. So everybody should join. We will send you very few emails to annoy you. And you might, if we remember every year, get a discount to our conference, which is great. The discount and the conference, they're both great. Okay, so my first segue, thank you, James, is I just don't have one. I, I don't have a segue at all to you, Katrina, I'm afraid. Um, oh, the, from the psychology of money to the... No, that's not going to work. Anyway, Katrina, you wrote about psychology myths. And I, I really like this kind of thing. I, I think there's so much of skeptics that before we became skeptical or before we kind of identified as skeptics, there are lots of these kind of truisms that we hear that we just accept. Some maybe that we don't so much, but a lot of stuff that you just go, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And then as skeptics, what I certainly personally have found myself doing a lot of the time is just putting my foot on the brakes and saying, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. Let's just look this up and just make sure that this is true. And this is something that you did a really nice job of with just looking at some of those 
basic psychology myths that we all kind of we assume these things are true we've read them on the internet we've heard them from friends and it turns out that they're largely false yes and and based on all sorts of um random weird things that may have <laughs> I learned some things going through it so I studied psychology and um you know there was some new things for me there so this is Bowman's idea to write about psychology myths I'm not sure if I got her favorite things in there because when you start looking into it there's just screeds and screeds and screeds of psychology myths so I stayed away from the ones that are to do with mental illness and what works what doesn't because I'll leave that to the professionals um and just pick some of those more ones we might have all heard of and I've only picked five so um, if I've left something out that's dear to you just email Mark and um, <laughs> we'll write another article later on and catch yes, you yes email podcast <laughs> at skeptics.nz or newsletter at skeptics.nz and definitely let us know because I'd, I'd love to see a, a follow-up with another five and if we can we can make this a series that would be really nice all right then. Okay, so I'll definitely do requests within reason. There we go. So um, the first one I've picked is bystander effect, and this was really interesting. So this is the theory that people are less likely to help if there are other individuals nearby. And it turns out that the textbook case that kicked this off was the violent rape and murder of Kitty Univis in 1964. So this has been around a long time. And it was thought at the time there were 38 witnesses that watched a 30-minute attack from their windows and saw it all happen and didn't intervene at all. So that was the original story. But later, um, when it got dug down into, there were actually way less witnesses and a lot of those witnesses couldn't actually see what was going on. So they weren't all sitting there gawking out their windows. Some people just heard some screams and sounds and didn't really know what to make of it. And a lot of them couldn't see what was happening at all. Um, and at least one of them actually did contact the police. But when they reported that in the case, they, they counted that as uh, an act of bystander for some reason. Um, okay. Yeah, so calling police is not doing anything, apparently. And it turns out this attack didn't happen in one attack. It happened in, there were two attacks. So the first attack was outside the windows, and someone yelled out the window, and someone called the police. And after they yelled out the window, the attacker stopped, and the victim walked away, and a whole bunch of people that had seen it, they... Okay, it's all good now. The actual fatal attack actually happened in a part of the building that not many people could see at all. Um, so there were how many? Six people who were actual eyewitnesses, and only three were deemed necessary to go into court to testify. So we were down from 38 witnesses to three actual witnesses. So that's quite a big difference. And you know what? People are actually more likely to respond and try and help someone than they are not. Um, so it's actually the whole premise and the story behind it isn't true. So we do notice when people don't react. So if we're walking down the street and someone gets mugged or knocked over and then people ignore them, we will get angry with those people. It goes against our nature to leave it. And we're going to notice it and we'll remember events when people don't respond. And 
it's it's the exception to our behavior rather than the rule so people will try and help and there's been a little bit of kicking around the good miss good samaritan kind of teaching which is a christian concept but there's been research on that and they found that people's response behaviors didn't change based on their religious belief so that's not true uh, just just um, a little bit just a little point here um one of the things about the neighborhood that Kenny Genovese lived in is that there actually were a lot of Jewish immigrants who had survived the Holocaust. So there actually was an anxiety about calling the police. Secondly, Kitty Genovese was also a lesbian. And there was a report of one of her friends who didn't realize it was Kitty Genovese being attacked. He was like, oh, my God, do, do I call the cops? And of course, this is, um, you know, mid-century America, even though it's New York, there's still a very heavily anti-LGBT sentiment amongst the police. So that means that people were like, oh, my God, do I call the police? Because it actually was a risk to them. So when this all was sort of being investigated, Kitty Genovese's partner, her lesbian partner, was also accused. And when she was eventually cleared of all charges, she didn't have any support of the community because there was a lot of anxiety about, oh, God, the police are around you. So she was very much isolated after that. So there, in, a, in a sense, there actually was some anxiety about going to the cops, but it's not deaf, as you're saying, uh, Katrina, it's not the way that we were thinking. Yeah, so, no, what's in, um, someone did call cops despite all that. And they, it wasn't everyone sitting in their windows, looking out the window, watching someone be killed. That is not what happened. So that brings me to my next one. So this is um, a bit more about talking about your problems will always help. And um, this goes back a bit to the talk therapy that Sigmund Freud popularized and used by psychotherapists as a way to alleviate distress. And it, there was a meta-analysis some time ago in 2006, and they didn't find evidence to support psychological debriefing. So that's where you have a traumatic happening and then you talk about it after and talk about what happened um, and in particular with severe trauma and at some other researchers found that psychotherapy only works half of the time and 10% of the patients might it might actually backfire so talking about the problem actually can make it bigger in your universe and make you think about it more and actually cause problems down the track and that, that's interesting because this is actually way over 10 years ago, um, before the Christchurch earthquakes, um, I was studying post-grad ergonomics and psychology, so it's talking at some of the big disasters, I think it was the Enron oil disaster and a few of those other things, and they were discouraging post-event debriefing, so as soon as you've had a disaster, you don't get everyone in a room and put them counsellors in there and try and talk to them about it, because what it can do is kind of, if someone was just coping, it can push them from that coping space into kind of ruminating on it and make it worse. Um, but it might be that um, talking about it might help down the track. But when you're in that coping space, it's most people are just kind of getting along. It's just later when things start to drag out. So I guess, you know, we had the Christchurch earthquakes. So we've got some real life experiences that people have had and we'll be able to reflect on whether talking about it helped or was it easier just to kind of get on. So I won't say it doesn't help, but it definitely, the research is showing that it doesn't always help, particularly after severe trauma. Now, the next one, I 
I mean, I guess to all our skeptics, we know that it's not true, but I do like that you dug into the origin of this. This is similar to one that I was fed at my last workplace a few years ago, where I was told that only 7% of communication when you're talking with someone is verbal and that the rest is nonverbal tone of voice or body language apparently is how we translate 93%. And I dug into this one and showed that it was absolute nonsense. And you you went for the 10% of the brain one, that we only use 10% of the brain. Yeah, it, it's one of those ones I think we all kind of know it's a bit dodge and don't really know exactly why. And this one started off as an idle speculation by a psychologist um, in 1907, so going back a bit, William James. And what his speculation was that we aren't using all our possible mental and physical resources. That's it. That's that all was he his said. speculation. Yep. <laughs> right. So then, all, we're not thinking like with all our brain all the time is the idea, basically. Well, he didn't even say that. Not. not we're not using all our possible mental and physical resources. Of course, we're bloody not. We're watching TV and we're, I mean, honestly, I'm capable of more than what I do most of the time, I think, I hope. Yeah. Um, so, so about 30 years, 30 years later, Lyle Thomas paraphrased it into the average man develops only 10% of his latent mental ability. So again, it's not actually saying you're only using 10% of your brain. It says you're only developing 10% of your mental potential. So it's right. different, but it's not at all what William James said in 1907. So since that, Thomas said that it's been represented as a fact and it's changed to we only use 10% of our brain. And I guess what we've got to think about is the organ in the body that uses the most energy most of the time consistently is the brain. It's a huge energy sack. It's really expensive energy-wise for humans to have their brains the size that they have and doing what they do. It's a real power-hungry computer that we've got in our skulls. And it turns out we aren't evolved to have a lot of stuff that does nothing and uses a lot of energy for no reason. So neurons die if they aren't used. Um, so it's a bit of a use it or lose it situation. And so if people were only using 10% of their brain, we would have seen that in autopsies. We would have seen massive brain die off common in autopsies. And we're not seeing that. But that's added to the fact that the theory actually came from absolutely nowhere. It wasn't research, it was an offhand comment in 1907. It's... Is it 10% by mass or volume? I mean, from what I understand, a lot of the brain is doing very, very basic functions and it's doing them all the time. And it's just, you know, the the higher parts of our brain where maybe it goes inactive at times and, um, and can chill out. But even yeah, then, I mean, the, the brain's a massively complex thing. And there may be you know, a reason for that, you know, we sleep, all sorts of things happen that give our brains a break or use it in slightly different ways. And just because it's not doing what we would normally expect it to do when we are being our highest functioning self doesn't actually mean that it's not doing something useful or performing some function or making your brain function better in the long run. So it's just that um, prefrontal cortex that's doing what we think about as thinking. And when you have a look at it, there's a whole lot of the brain that's just doing things that we, we don't want to think about all the time, like breathing and, you know, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, Thanks. so the next one is the different learning styles one. And this is one where, like, I think the first two I didn't realize were, were nonsense. Um, the third one, I think, as I said, is obvious to all skeptics. This one I read about a couple of years ago, debunking the learning styles thing. Yes, so this is the train of thought that people have preferences for the way they learn. So we've all heard people talk about it and probably have done it ourselves. We go, I'm not really a diagram person. I'm, um, you know, more writing or auditory. You know, if you talk to me, I'm, or I'm not auditory. I'm a visual learner. So um, don't give me a lecture. Just give me pictures and then I'll, I'll take it in. And so the thinking is, well, if we tailor the, um, you know, educational material to what the person likes to do, so visually or hands-on, then that will help people learn tailor to the preferences and I guess you know intuitively you just think oh I guess that makes sense but there isn't actually any science to back that up and in fact it can backfire it can also be a bit of a distraction so someone may not even try to learn something because you know that's the way their brain works I'm just not a I'm just not a diagram person or I'm just not a numbers person and or I can't do things with my hands or I have to do it hands on, you know, those sorts of things. And so the evidence suggests it's better to focus on strategies that work for most students. And so that's things like if you want to remember stuff, have a quiz, practice memorizing it, that sort of stuff. So um, tailoring to people's styles um, means that they're really only going to be responsive to taking things in a certain way, worst case scenario. And they may not be able to learn from those other streams. And also it doesn't show that there's any benefit. So that's interesting to me. And the last one, the repressing of traumatic memories, which is something that L. Ron Hubbard seemed to have made uh, probably billions of dollars off of the idea that people at a cellular level um, record these traumatic memories. But but more popularly, there, there is this idea that um, memories get pushed down and forgotten and that they can be triggered and come back and cause all sorts of psychological problems. Yeah, and this one's caused quite a lot of damage over the years. So it was a theory popular with psychoanalysts that victims of trauma, particularly childhood trauma and abuse, um, repress the memory of these incidents, but may recall them decades later. There, there is no evidence that memories can be blocked out. Like sometimes you have blackouts, might have had a bit too much alcohol. It's quite rare, but, you know, there's... Things happen to people's memory, but in terms of just blocking out something that happened and there's no other reason, no physical reason, there's no evidence to support that you can repress memories. Also, our memory is malleable. People's memories are not um, perfect. And um, so some of the attempts to recover memories have resulted in all sorts of problems later, um, so where memories are effectively created after the fact. So when we are having a memory, we're probably not remembering exactly what happened. We're recreating it from all sorts of bits and pieces in our head, whatever the stimulus was. And this is why when people kind of get together years later and recall an event, the recollections don't always line up. And um, so an example of where this went horribly wrong was the 1990s satanic ritual abuse panic. 
Um, and so they used hypnosis and leading questioning in the interviews of people, and that changed people's memories of, well, I don't even think any of this occurred, but people were able to remember things that didn't happen. Uh, there were some convictions for really horrific satanic crimes um, on the basis of these recovered memories, but subsequently the FBI didn't find any evidence that any of this had happened at all. And further research found that the people that had reported this um, suffered mentally as a result. So the, the whole process that they were put through caused them harm as well, and obviously it caused harm to the people that were wrongfully convicted. But the bit that sticks in my core <laughs> is that there's an award-winning book that entrenched these ideas, um, which is still for sale. You can get it on Kindle, you can get it in hard copy book, and it's called The Courage to Heal. And it's by Alan Bass and Laura Davis, and they've got no qualifications. So neither of them have formal training or qualifications in psychiatry, psychology, or any other kind of mental illness, and they're still selling the book based on this underpinning idea, which is total rubbish and has actually caused so much harm in the past. So it's out there, you know, courage to heal, figure out these things that have happened in your past, and then you can go and address them. And it's just really dangerous stuff. And of course, this this is not something that's just overseas. It was a big problem, as you say, in the 80s and 90s in the States. But we had it over here in the 90s with Peter Ellis case. Um, that was one that was very unfortunate and, and things just went horribly wrong there questioning children in about the worst way possible. And more recently in that, I know I received an email a couple of years ago um, from someone, I think they'd read some of the stuff I'd written about this, and they were asking if the skeptics could help um, because they were an ex-school teacher and they had a student or an ex-student that was coming forward with repressed memories of abuse. Um, and the teacher was saying, look, I've I figured out who she's been to and there's this certain new age counselor who's all about past life regression and hypnosis and suddenly these things are coming out of nowhere um and he's like i you know i feel i'm really stuck what can i do in fact no it wasn't him it was the lawyer that emailed us this this ex-teacher's lawyer emailed and said this is what's happening to my client and you know we're the skeptics we're we're generally not professionals at this kind of thing so i was like look yeah this is an established thing it is a problem here are some people who are professionals that you should go and talk to who are also local in new zealand and hopefully one of those will be able to help you if this ends up going to court because it's yeah i mean the fact that it's still happening today that you know there are still these people that are able to help you access your repressed memories it's pretty scary yeah if you're dealing with a crime that's occurred a long time in the past and you're relying on the people that were there as the only evidence it becomes a big problem doesn't it if someone's making stuff up but actually you know not consciously making it up so they're going to come across as really genuine because they really truly believe that this has happened so I think it is something that people will be very conscious of now that it can occur, but, you know, you wind the clock back and it mm. just sounded like that had happened. Why would a small child make this up? That makes no sense. 
And that's a good point that I'd, I'd say in that situation, um, the student is probably being mistreated as much as the, you know, the teacher is being misaccused, that there, there is somebody behind this that's helping recover these memories that is more at fault than the person that's just gone to get help and is suddenly being led through, having their hand held um, you know, to bring these new accusations out. You know, when when you read some of these interviews and just how leading they are, it it it's obvious that this is not an impartial way of doing it. It's not a good way of doing it. God, that ended a bit heavily, didn't it? But yes, for anybody that's not aware of the Peter Ellis case, go and read the Wikipedia page. Um, I haven't read it, but I believe the book A City Possessed is very good. Um, if you can pick up a copy of that, I've been told it's well worth reading. Has anybody read A City Possessed? Well, I mean, um, we did have his we did have his lawyer come and talk to us at the last skeptics conference. So I think oh. we had a really good, good knowledge of Peter Ellis and what was happening there. But of course, um, the, his angle was a bit more about um, the homosexuality laws at the time. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think for me at our last conference, that was my favorite talk that really did stand out. a very emotional talk. Okay, so from psychology myths, we're going to move on just briefly to me, because honestly, in the newsletter, I didn't have much of my own thoughts to say about this, but I wanted to talk about the new UFO claims or UAP, as we're now calling them in the media. Um, and this newest one is a whistleblower called David Grush. Now, presumably, you guys have all seen this news. Yeah, so so this one was basically a, a whistleblower who was high up in the government um, in the US, and now he's come out to whistleblow that there basically are crashed alien craft and that there are efforts to suppress this and that parts of the government are being lied to by other parts of the government. And I think because he's so senior, he's managed to make more waves than other people. He's managed to get like congressional hearings going on and stuff like this. But it just very much looks like a continuation of everything we've seen in UFO law up until this point. It's the same thing, which is not here is my direct evidence. Here is the proof. It's I talked to someone who heard from somebody else that they saw an alien in a basement somewhere. Um, it's I, I met a guy who swore blind to me that he saw a crashed alien craft being pulled apart by engineers in an underground lair in a mountain and that kind of thing. And what's always annoying with this, I think, is just how many people get sucked in by it. I think there's a certain sector of the population, unfortunately, even within the media, within journalism, who want this to be true. They want there to be aliens. And so it's that kind of thing, you know, when we're being skeptical, the, th the thing we have to watch out most is for the things that we want to be true. I want there to be an artificial general intelligence. I want there to be a cool AI that, that I can interact with. And so I realize that I have to guard against any news that suggests that this is a real thing. Aliens as well. I, I think probably most of us who read sci-fi and love technology, we're, we're really interested in aliens. And so when you read about this weird-ass object that's cigar-shaped and spinning in an eccentric way as it's coming towards Earth... Maybe it's an alien spacecraft, especially when one academic is saying that it is. 
And of course, it turns out that it's probably not. There are other good reasons why this might be the case. But these are the kinds of things where we have to be really careful. And so in this case, it was a journalist called Ross Coulthard, who's an Australian journalist who really seems to have gone on to town on this one. He's worked for 60 Minutes in Australia, and he did this hard-hitting interview with this guy, David Grush, talking about the claims. And this journalist really seems to have been sucked into it. And our own local journalists on News Hub Nation, they couldn't talk with David Grush, but they did get to talk with the guy who talked to David Grush. So they interviewed the Australian journalist. And again, it was too credulous. Like, watching it, it was really painful. And I looked into the background of this journalist, Ross Coulthard, and I found that he's written a book called, uh, was it In Plain Sight, where he talks about UFO history. And he comes across sounding very much like he believes in UFOs. So he came into this interview already wanting this to be true. And then I read, I managed to find one really nice Amazon review that just tore the book to shreds, which was good. The usual thing about mutilated cattle and, ooh, look at those laser precision cuts that could only have been done by aliens. Like, like anybody on a farm in New Mexico is qualified to judge the quality of an incision in an animal, uh, whether it's, you know, a bird having pecked it or an alien's laser surgery device. So, so that was a really good review. And then I went on to look at, okay, so, you know, some of the media is getting sucked in by this. But what are the skeptics saying? And I, I found, you know, NASA and, and some other government departments were very quick to stand up and say, look, there's a whole hoo-ha at the moment, but there's not good evidence. Um, and then I looked at some decent skeptics, see what they said. And I think Steve Novella was the best. I didn't realize that the Skeptics Guide to the Universe are now on TikTok, but I found a long TikTok video with Steve Novella just going through um, why this is probably not evidence of aliens. And he made some really good simple points. One, as I said, it, it's all second and third hand. There's no actual evidence. Two, the idea that aliens can fly interstellar distances and then keep crashing into planet Earth just seems a little bit silly. Like their technology is so good they can do that and yet so bad they can't even stay up in the sky uh, or that they're, they're so defenseless that they get shot down as soon as they get here. The third one is the whole big conspiracy one. Um, who was that comedy duo uh, Mitchell and Webb, I think, did the one about um, the faking the moon landing and how it ends up that trying to fake it just gets so big and complex that it's actually cheaper to do the damn thing for real. That, you know, being able to hide this and put all that effort into making it look realistic, it just ends up becoming more impossible the bigger the thing is. And of course, for UFOs, the idea is that these have been hidden since at least the 1960s. And that that's a huge conspiracy, something that lots of people, like thousands and thousands of people, would have had to have been aware of. It's just not possible. Like, I worked at the observatory for seven years, three and a half years full-time, and answered most of the phone calls. So we got all the UFO calls. Not a single one was anything I couldn't explain almost straight away. So, you know, it's Saturn. It was the comet that's been in the sky for ages and in the newspaper, fireballs. Um, I did have some people approach me with first-hand accounts of how they had had aliens land in their backyard and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I didn't have any evidence that that had actually occurred. But there, it's just... The chances of nothing, no hard evidence happening at all, and none of those 
there's just absolutely nothing if it was happening. Humans are just not that good at keeping secrets. And mm-hmm. uh, that one actually, Saturn, the 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 number of times that people get Saturn confused with UFO is is quite surprising. I mean, it's quite bright in the sky at times. Yeah, it'd be um, Venus probably, or you know, in the um, morning and evening star. So what happens is it because it's morning and evening, it's low in the sky, so you're looking right through the atmosphere, so it can flash blue and red and do all sorts of things. Um, and when people are looking into the sky, they lose all sense of scale. Um, so a little glow bug flying around can look like it's miles away, you know, UFO doing amazing manoeuvres and people don't know. My um, old boss, he was looking through a telescope at a cigar-shaped silver object, um, but <laughs> when he looks through the lens, he could see that it was a fighter plane. It just had a air bubble around it because it was going so fast. So, um, you know, a lot of these things look really weird, but they can actually be explained. I also can't help but wonder if um, recent events in the US are, are probably giving us the best evidence we have that the United States government doesn't know anything about <laughs> alien spacecraft because given in lights of the Trump indictment, there is a 0% chance that Donald Trump wouldn't be talking about that to everybody who walked into Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> and have a, have a box somewhere in his toilet of um, photographs. Yeah. It's yeah. right. Yeah. That's a really good point. Oh, and bringing up the cigar shaped objects. From what I understand, that was the old UFO shape before flying saucers became saucers. Everybody was reporting cigar shaped objects. And then I think the, oh, who were the couple? There was a couple that reported and it became very famous. And when they reported it, they reported a spaceship that was moving like it was a saucer skipping on the water. So like when you skim a stone along the water, they were trying apparently to describe its movement and suddenly it became saucer shaped. And from then on, flying saucers are now round. So the the shape that was generally accepted by um, by the public has has changed over time, which I thought was interesting. But so, OK, so claim so um, point number four that Steve Novella made was that these are very vague claims. Um, Basically, David Grush is talking about, as I said, conspiracy and hiding information. He's not making definite concrete claims so much as he is just saying people are lying to us. We need to know the truth. The next one is, and this isn't cast iron because government departments lie, but the idea that multiple government departments have all spoken up and said there's nothing to this. This is this is not a thing. And we would probably know if it was a thing. And then the last one is the fact that this whistleblower is you know, wandering around and talking on TV and being very public about this, and he hasn't had a bullet through his head. Uh, The fact the government that has let him live has not kidnapped him and taken him to Guantanamo Bay or just got rid of him, very suggestive of the fact that they're not worried about what he's saying, which is very indicative of the fact that it's not true. Um, So I really like that. And then the last thing I found was um, because we had this local interview of the interviewer, somebody decided to ask Andrew Little, our Minister of Defence, what he thought. And he said, I've never believed in aliens and have seen nothing in this job that's changed my mind. So at least over here, maybe we're not seeing these aliens. But I wonder if, you know, how current uh, streaming media might influence this, this sort of change in how we believe about conspiracy theories and aliens. And there's a channel that's called Gaia. 
and it's owned by the same guy who owned the Gaim company. And Gaim was a yoga mat company. Still is, still is a yoga mat company. But all their videos are like, you know, the worst of the worst of the nonsense that you would find on what we now consider the history channel, you know, aliens. It's aliens. Mm -hmm. Aliens in World War II, Hitler's occult legends, same sort of stuff. You know, more people able to access that. So it gets that news out there. It's no longer filtered by, say, you know, TV NZ on demand. If you want yeah. that media, you go get it. Yeah, certainly I watched a video on YouTube a couple of weeks back looking at a bunch of science channels that were generating very unsciencey content. And it's quite formulaic and a lot of it's kind of read by some kind of AI voice thing. Um, but they're getting hundreds of thousands of views. I mean, it seems like all this tantalizing stuff is probably just for ad revenue. But, you know, despite the fact that it's making a profit, sadly, it's also misinforming the public. And yeah, on YouTube, there's very little in the way of decent filters to stop people watching this misleading nonsense about Hitler's UFOs and stuff. So, yeah, no, I that's worrying, the idea that more people are going to get into UFOs and think they're real. Maybe we need to be generating skeptical YouTube content, but that sounds like a big job. But I mean, isn't that sort of, you know, something that always aligns with, you know, downturns in the economy or economic uncertainty, this increased belief in not necessarily specifically aliens, so that sort of does come into it. But, um, you know, distrust of the government associated with this increased belief in, you know, the paranormal and the occult and the strange and the unusual, you know, something exciting when or interesting when the whole world is sort of a uh, disappointing and scary. Yeah, I remember you writing about that a while ago when a journalist came to us about uh, use of tarot. Um, yeah. And yeah, you, you talked about how, you know, especially in something like COVID times, people might be more likely to turn to a tarot card reader looking for answers. Mm. Or, you know, you are more likely to be at home, bored, so what are you going to do but put YouTube on an endless scroll or an endless stream? And all of a sudden you get start getting these random videos about various cult leaders. And lizard people and mm. all sorts. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting fantasy, though. I mean, it's just sort of thinking about, oh, the world might be bigger. There might be all these strange things going on. It makes the world, you know, a more interesting place. And I think some people get caught up in it. But... You look at the, a lot of the alien visitations, kidnappings, that kind of stuff, and wind it back, and you have a lot of similar things, sort of angel visits, you go back fairies, those kind of things. Um, you know, the, the, it sort of at some point those experiences sort of change more into aliens, but they've always kind of been there in some way. They've always been these otherworldly beings that. Um, a sort of dream like that will come in and maybe take you in your sleep or they might do experiments on you or play tricks on you like the fairies did. And it's always been there. It seems to be a human thing that we do. And it's just, well, what is it today? Um, and may maybe it's being honed by science because certainly aliens to me feel more plausible than fairies or God. Um, you know, we, we've got to the point where at least it feels scientific, even if there are still scientific issues like, oh, my goodness, interstellar dif uh, distances are ridiculous. Aliens, you know, traveling that far is just such a it's such a huge undertaking. It's very unlikely to happen. But ignoring those little subtleties, at least aliens feel sciencey. They feel like they accord 
with a lot of what we do understand about the universe, whereas ideas of fairies and things like that really don't fit so well these days. So is this just like the evolutionary advance of pseudoscientific ideas then? We're, uh, we're kind of honing them by cutting off the sides and the bits that don't work. Well, I mean, you know, as coming from a, you know, provin- from, from Newfoundland, and there's a big belief in fairies, particularly in relation to blueberry picking. And when you sort of look at what people were saying about fairies and the fairies coming to get you if you don't do X, Y, and Z when you're blueberry picking, a lot of these stories sort of, or a lot of these myths or legends or fables, they're kind of a way that in, be- in, be- in between the lines, they're telling us something about the beliefs of the people. Or they're trying to explain why, oh, so-and-so went missing overnight and he's looking a little bit disheveled. Yes, he was taken by the fairies. Or was he really actually going to go see his girlfriend that he wasn't supposed to be seeing because she's Catholic and he's Protestant? So what, an- what, what do what do UFOs sort of hide? You know, is it just because is are they sort of a story that someone's telling a, a tale out of school to uh, not let their wife know that they're stepping out on them? You lost me at blueberries. You are going to have to write me an article about blueberry picking and fairies in Newfoundland, please. I have a paper. I've had to write a paper for a course. So don't worry. You're going to get a 10-page monstrosity to pop at the bottom of the newsletter next time. Excellent. If you want it. I don't think you do. I no, I do. I, I absolutely do. This does sound fascinating. I mean, I come from a small rural place and I can't remember, but we probably had something similar. And I, I'm fascinated by how these things kind of grow out of nothing. Well, I mean, you know, it's blueberry was something that the woman did. So, you you know, you give the women all these things about what happens when you go too far. You go too far into the wild to pick your blueberries. But the economic fortune of a community was based on the fishing. You know, so you can't have your boys afraid of any uh, sea monsters. So we didn't have we don't have sea monster myths. OK, so, there, so- there's, there's, a, there's a rationale in folklore of why you know it's it's a measure it's part of it is control how do you control your people yeah a, the, a- the, the one thing i remember from my father who was a fisherman and their myths was that at least where i come from kind of southwest of england hmm. you couldn't say rabbit on a boat it was bad luck so everybody called them undergrounds that was the accepted <laughs> name for a rabbit because i guess you'd sink if you mentioned the word rabbit on a boat i don't think anybody ever tested it um maybe i should have tried that as a young skeptic oh so there's a there's a thing about bananas and women on boats as well wouldn't you <laughs> what? Um, I, i've definitely been on boats and they have not sunk um i can't recall if i've ever eaten a banana on a boat that would be the ultimate nuclear option wouldn't it so is this no bananas or women on boats or is it just bananas and women in combination on a boat i I think it's separately um and maybe if you did both while talking about rabbits still implode (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay yes all right so the i love these kinds of myths yeah so i want your article bromin katrina (laughs) if you've got an article about something like this uh, maybe we can do a myth special, but only after next week's music special, yes. which I'm really looking forward to. So it's a little bit last minute, but if you can get us an article by Saturday about music, um, we will put it in the newsletter, unless it's truly atrocious. <laughs> awesome. And so Bronwyn, we are on to you last. And I know, lucky last. I still haven't found a decent segue. That They just haven't uh, You You missed the perfect segue because... Well, you know, these are the guys who would not believe in universal basic income. They were absolutely not about taking care of the poor. They were not about equality. Specifically, they were about beating the poor man while he was down, not helping him out of the gutter. 
And this is Zenith Applied Philosophy. Yep, that, that would be a segue from the first to the yeah. fourth of our topics. <laughs> That's what I said. You kind of missed a hat trick there. <laughs> yeah, I should have I should have put you second. Uh, Maybe well. we could do anyway. some sort of reverse segue, you know, like link back to the first story at the end of the last. <laughs> yes. And then people can just listen to us on a loop forever and ever and ever. <laughs> But yeah, no, so Zenith Applied Philosophy, I was kind of talking about him with our last podcast two weeks ago, um, particularly just in terms of talking about John Eric Dalhoff. He was a ex-Scientology member um, and the son of a very wealthy man, um, a Jorgen Dalhoff, who owned Dalhoff and King. Um, this business was sort of, well, he was kind of a, Jorgen Dalhoff was kind of a trailblazing entrepreneur for New Zealand. He was importing combine harvesters and farm equipment. He was importing um, European uh, transport trucks. I think he was also trying to introduce um, free, some sort of um, freeze drying business every now and then getting hampered by the local authorities. But in the end, Jorgen Dalhoff became quite rich. His youngest daughter, Mary Ann, um, sort of scored herself a really good wedding and a really good partnership um, with a fellow wealthy Australian family um, who are, you know, big legal names in Australia. But getting back to good old John, don't really have much information aside from the fact that he he went clear. He was clear number 165 and he was a class seven and had worked as an intern at the big Scientology headquarters when it was headquartered in the UK. Uh, but somehow in the early 70s, he, he gets kicked out for doing something unethical. Now, of course, I guess the easy thing to do is to think of, you know, anyone gets kicked out of Scientology, aren't they a good dude? This isn't the case with John Eric. Uh, no one knows why. There is no documentation available at present. No one's hanging on to any documents about why he was expelled. But I think the point I tried to make in the last episode is... No one was no one was going after him the way that we're used to Scientology going after people. When John Eric Dalhoff was expelled from Scientology, Scientology was going through a lot of legal troubles. They were more so the subject of legal interest, um, particularly in terms of tax evasion. Um, they were trying to go around from port to port in their little Sea Org ship back when Sea Org was actually a Navy, um, a Navy organization, a sea-based organization. And yeah, I think Dalhoff probably had quite a bit of money. And they weren't they weren't going to touch him. Whereas, you know, maybe about a decade, if he had sort of caused some caused a store about a decade later, uh, I think David Miskovich would have probably sued the pants of John Eric Dalhoff for the amount of copying that he did, because pretty much all of Zap applied philosophy's materials were identified as being out and out copies. Right. Of Scientology out of Scientology materials and people who, you know, in some of the articles I was reading from the 80s, people people who attended both courses were like, yeah, Scientology is cheaper. And that wasn't the reputation of Scientology at the time. Scientology was, you know, a bit pricey in its own right or getting quite pricey. But Dalhoff was specifically, you know, going for very rich, very rich people. Um, it kind of people sort of try to describe it as a mix of Scientology, the very ultra conservative right wing philosophy of the John Birch Society and Eastern mysticism. I'm not really seeing the Eastern mysticism. I think that's just maybe an old descriptor that people also attach to Scientology because L. Ron Hubbard did have some occult connections. His best his ex best friend, I suppose, was uh, Jack Parsons, who was really into um, OTO, like the Golden Dawn and before he died. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So I guess maybe this wasn't even started with the best of intentions and seems to have been started with some marketing now. So, I mean, steal from Scientology and sell at 10 times the price to rich people. That that sounds pretty clever. Mm. But from, from what I've seen in your article and what I've heard elsewhere, I mean, things just kept going downhill, right? Things just got kind of worse and worse over time. Mm. And I think it's, yeah, it ended up being less and less. You hear less and less about the Scientology aspects of it and more and more about the financial gain and I think I wrote, it was kind of like, you know, the secret, you know, this idea of positive think. I mean, we call it, I guess, positive thinking, but really semi-prosperity gospel uh, sort of thinking, if I want this, I will get it. Uh, so he would often sort of set his followers these different activities to prove to me that you can do this. Because obviously, if you can prove to him that you can do these activities, well, A, you're proving to them that you are malleable. And you're also proving to them that you got a lot of money. So I came across a LinkedIn page of a former Zap member who got into it through an introduction by two quote unquote enterprising individuals or enterprising brothers who I have suspicions of who those brothers are based on what I know a little bit about uh, the membership of Zap. But anyways, one of the activities that was given was that they would have 24 hours to find a house, buy the house and furnish the house all in 24 hours now tell me you are not old economy steve and this is the 1980s without telling me you're old economy steve and this is the 1980s uh, but obviously these guys were businessmen so they already had the money and potentially relationships with the bank to be able for them to be able to go off and get this house and furnish it quite quickly and they had to maintain the house for a year and that's all while paying repeatedly for the same courses up to thousands of dollars by the mid eighties to do any of these courses, as well as at random, if you ticked off John Eric Dalhoff, he would fine you. You'd get these sort of points and you'd have to work off these points. And depending on what you did, you actually may not be working at your job. You may be spending a day of hard labor, about eight and a half hours at Natrodale or Natrodale uh, farm in Belfast Christchurch. So this seems like one of those cults that picks the path where they're not so much going for numbers. I mean, you know, the more you become strict and punish people, the more you lose people. But the few people that stick, it turns out they will go through a whole lot. They will give you all of their money. They mm -hmm. will work for hours on end for nothing that you can abuse these people a lot. Right. You might only have 20 or 30 people, mm -hmm. but those 20 or 30, they're so invested in it. They're, they're so this is their life now that basically you can do pretty much anything with them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And certainly there were a couple of gentlemen who died, Lane Anthony Hunt and Peter Seward. Peter Seward died in an accident, whereas Lane Anthony Hunt died during a, again, another knockoff of a Scientology ritual, but he was doing a purification ritual where he would do, he would essentially starve himself, it sounded like, or at least severely restrict his food intake, put on a wetsuit, go up and down these um, large flights of stairs and then hang out for several hours in a sauna. And eventually his heart gave out. Yeah. So that's the, that's the Scientology purification rundown, obviously rewritten for Zap, but yeah, saunas, high doses of magnesium in the, the Auckland ideal org, their big building there, they've got a bunch of exercise bikes. It all looks very nice, but yeah, I mean, they tried getting me to sign up for that one. That was kind of an introductory course is the, uh, the purification rundown mm. a few thousand dollars. And from what I've read, it's just dangerous. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, and I don't know what happened if they kept on doing that purification ritual after this person died, because I'm pretty sure if you were associated with a death at a sauna or a spa, I don't think any sauna or spa would want to have you back. But um, if, if potentially, it seems that there may have been a sort of a tier in terms of the membership. Uh, when we look back in the late 2000s and going on, anytime David Henderson is mentioned, Zap is brought up. And David Hender- Dave Henderson, who is a Christchurch property developer who's been in quite a few lawsuits and quite a lot of controversy, um, he has a positive recollection of his time with Zap, as does former ACT president Trevor Loudon. Now, Trevor Loudon, he's he's definitely a character, isn't he? Did you look much into his background? Yeah, yeah. He, I think he's definitely taken the right-wing politics aspect of it to heart. Yes, and it turns out that he's found a very receptive audience for that in the US now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've watched one of his documentaries, and it was it was truly trashy. I think it was something maybe that, that one was about communists and the, the worry of commies in well, america well it was um you know saying that the southern baptist church was a source of communist in america or like you know a big you know big proponent and supporter of communism in america which is an insane well rid- i should say it's a ridiculous accusation to make given that a it's evangelical christianity in america who are also probably you know very republican and therefore trump aside probably very anti-russia yeah, so that documentary I think that you talked about in your article was different to the one that I watched. I watched one mm-hmm. called The Enemies Within, mm-hmm. um, which IMDb says Trevor Loudon's terrifying documentary exposes the ties between elected officials in the highest reaches of the United States government and their radical anti-American allies. So it's basically Clinton and Obama are communists, was mm-hmm. the thesis of that documentary. Mm-hmm. But weird that these these really right-wing American documentaries are being made by a Kiwi. Yeah, it's it's and you know, he's got that blog and he is, you know, he runs KeyWiki, which you know is really good at kind of blacklisting uh left left-leaning activists as well. Okay. So um people kind of end up, you know, through KeyWiki or whatever information KeyWiki has there end up getting doxxed. Hmm. Um, so Dalhoff was obviously a problem, but it seems like the government didn't do much about it. I mean, he, he had this house where people would go and, mm. you know, he was abusing people. And yeah, didn't he own it's, even it's, like it's, a row of houses? Uh, well, he didn't. I don't know if he owned it. It's just that a lot of people, I guess, potentially, again, as part of this exercise of prove that you're loyal to me, buy this house, keep it up for a year. A lot of members did buy property around Clyde Road. Right. In Christchurch. Uh, there was some concern from council, from the local council at the time that he was running a commercial business in a zone that was that was zoned residential. And he claimed, oh, no, no, I'm not doing anything like that. That's clearly a lie, uh, but nothing else came of it. I don't know if there was a zoning change or what have you in the 80s, but no other interest. Well, I shouldn't say no other interests. I think it was brought up in Parliament from actually to the Minister of Health. Aren't you going to do this investigation? And he's like, why? Why? Why do I? Why, why do I need to do an investigation? So there was a reluctance from the government to get involved. Yeah, and, and I guess maybe for- this is the case. I mean, the same that we've seen with Centerpoint that. I, I guess local councils, at least, they they go after these groups where they can. It's not like you can bust into a house and arrest people for running a cult. Everybody's got free will to 
abuse people in certain ways it seems to be fine and mm. certainly government tries to stay away from religion a lot but i guess when it comes to running a business from a residential place or having 250 people on a site that's only registered for 60 that's a clear-cut way that you can go after a group like this yeah. but because so many members of zap also owned various restaurants and other businesses in Christchurch at the time. I think it was like the Dog House was a big one, the American Burger Bar. They owned a lot of restaurants. But because of their similar politics, it was kind of easy for the then hotel workers union to go in and be like, excuse me, uh, you these people are not being paid appropriately. And they were able to take individual ZAP members to court, but not as ZAP members, but as skeevy anti-union business owners. Right. So after Dalhoff died, mm-hmm. what happened to Zap? I mean, is it is it still going in any form today? Can I join Zap? I mean, are you a high tone individual there, Mark? <laughs> I'd like to think I could at least Ooh. pretend to be. You are packy. You are packy, huh? You sound a bit posh, posher <laughs> yeah. than the average Kiwi. You might be able to slip right in. Um, as best as I can tell, the most recent reference to to zap actually running was in 2008 there was an article done in the press so it seemed that dalhoff's widow um who is alternately referred to as marjorie joy or mary joy or mary depending on what you're reading she was still running the courses out of her apartment in the heritage hotel and okay yeah but again that's sort of the most recent You know, and that's so that, you know, when you think about 2008, that's about 14, 15 years ago. Yeah, so it could conceivably still be going. Conceivably, yeah. I mean, it looks like she's still kicking around, at least according to the company's register. She is, that name is listed as a director or shareholder in quite a few companies alongside their son, Jens. There'd be a lot of assets tied up that stuff wouldn't have just gone away. Um, Mm. I mean, that's a common hook, isn't it, to get people to spend a lump of money on something and then human psychology convince you. People make up reasons as to why it was a good investment and then they they have to do another thing and then they're looking at, well, if I don't do that, then I'm walking away from all this money I spent on. Yeah, there's, there's some cost fallacy, but I think there's also survivorship bias. So you have these men, often men, who were very successful in business by following the rules and the activities of ZAP. So therefore, they probably feel quite, you know, indebted or at least very positive about their ZAP experience. So the message to our listeners is that if you're in Christchurch and somebody comes up to you with an opportunity to join this group that will help you in business and help you with your any mental issues you have and and improve your life in all sorts of different ways. And it's called Zap. You need to run a mile. You can also email me at Bronwyn at skeptics.nz because I would love to know if anyone had any updates about any of the groups or the people I write about. You know, I want to know more. I want to write updates. You know, were you a part of the Institute of Basic Life Principles in New Zealand? I want to hear from you, sir or madam or guy, gal or non-binary pal. Wow. Going from IBLP to being a skeptic sounds like a huge leap. I do hope people are making that kind of leap, but that is one end of the spectrum to the other, like ultra-conservative Christianity to full-on skeptic. Oof. I mean, I don't think all of our our listeners are full-on skeptics. I mean, you know, we posted that piece in the newsletter a couple of months ago from the guy who was like, I have an admission to make. I'm 
Christian aligned. <laughs> you know, I'm Christian sympathetic. I'm a Christian sympathizer. I, you know? I think we it was just a sorts. Christian. I I, I, I love your euphemisms, but I think it was just a Christian. Yeah. Christian adjacent. <laughs> Stop it. Too many. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Well, I think we, we've come in at about an hour and a half again. So this is another bumper episode, but we haven't gone ridiculous this time. Um, and I think we probably need to wrap it up about now after Bronwyn talking about what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Yes, we got quite a few things going on starting in Wellington. This Friday, we have our in-person skeptics in the pub meeting at the Intercontinental Hotel inside the lobby lounge in on two gray street so we're not at the two gray restaurant we're in the hotel next door that's okay so not not just this friday but in two weeks on friday as well right yes we meet every two weeks if you want to uh put it in your calendar so you remember that's every two weeks you can follow us on meetup nice and james you're going to be there on friday I will be there, yes. Cool. So anybody that would like to come and talk to James about UBI, and I I heard last night, James, that apparently the author of the paper that you critiqued has a few questions for you. Oh, yeah. Um, so may, maybe he'll come along at some point. I did tell his wife, who I was talking with yesterday, that if he has any questions, he's more than welcome to come along to Skeptics in the Pub and grill you. So mentally prepare yourself for that, but I don't think we're going to see him. I, I think you're all fine. It's not going to end up in fisticuffs or anything. Well, I guess we'll see. <laughs> but um, James will be there if you want to know more about economics. And he is a goldmine of information. We always have very interesting chats because turns out James can remember a lot of facts in his big brain. And that makes it very useful because he doesn't even have to pull his phone out sometimes. Some so, of them look for, true. So, so, so look for the gentleman <laughs> with the big brain at the Intercontinental Hotel in the lobby lounge at 6 p.m. this Friday. Uh, then next Thursday is the science-based healthcare activism in the pub. That's also starting at 6.30 p.m. at the Fork and Brewer. Does that sound correct, Mark? That does sound correct. Well done. All right. Then on July 4th at 7 p.m., if you are in Auckland and you want to be a skeptic for a, a, even a couple hours, you can join the Skeptics in the Pub of Auckland at the Dice and Fork. So that'll be Tuesday, July 4th at 7 p.m. No updates for Dunedin this week, uh, but just follow them on Meetup and you'll have your future dates when they become available. And of course, we will have conference coming up end of November. We'll be in Dunedin at the Settlers uh, Museum. Museum. So 25th to 26th of November. Um, yeah. Definitely going ahead. Book your tickets now. Well, not definitely, definitely. I can't be sure of anything in the world. We might end up with a new strain of COVID. Who knows what's going to happen? But we are aiming to run it on the last weekend of November. I believe we booked the venue. We're starting to book speakers. Uh, we would love to see you there. A website will be up when, Mark? <laughs> when after, Craig after you ed- me enough. After you edit this podcast? Yeah, <laughs> maybe Sometime not. next week. We'll- no, no, it's actually, it's only about 12 minutes until my um, Eastern Lightning meeting starts, my fellowship mm. meeting. So I've, I've got to go soon and join in that. There's, there's been some more discord there. Brother Jared, who threatened me recently, he quit the group for a few hours and came back again and then talked about how sometimes he's hot headed, but it's all because of Satan. Did you tell him it's not at airport? <laughs> he doesn't need to announce that he's leaving? No, no, I didn't. But maybe, well, yeah, I, 
I'm going to wind him up. I'm not sure I can be that snarky to wind him up. Um, Is this turning into some sort of serialized soap opera, Mac? Um, yeah, I think it is. I think I'm my job now, I think, is to stir things up as much as possible and cause discord. I mean, it's not just me. We we had a guy on the other night who I swear was on meth at the time. He was talking mile a minute. He was all over the place. He started getting angry. It was, I'm pretty sure. And he was talking about how he'd been on crack before. So I, I think there was a drug problem there. And it was interesting to see how the group totally failed to deal with that in any useful way whatsoever. Yeah, I don't I don't know if uh, necessarily meth users or uh, drug users are the usual recruits of uh, Eastern Lightning. They tend to go for other Christians, which, of course, could potentially, you know, could easily be um, ex-substance users. But uh, yeah, I don't I think that's don't necessarily think... I don't think that's what who like Eastern Lightning tends to recruit. Yeah, I don't think these church leaders are prepared for that kind of member. So it's been it's been kind of interesting um, to see. But anyway, yeah, so I need to go. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. It's time for me to say goodbye. But, oh, but feedback. Podcast at skeptics.nz. We'd love to hear from you. Bronwyn wants to hear about any of the groups she's ever detailed. And if you've got any weird Newfoundland myths that she should be writing about, please hassle her because <laughs> I want to see that article. Katrina wants to hear about psychology myths. If you've got anything economics, I really want James to write us another article. I'd love to have him back on the podcast as well. So think about economic stuff and let us know. Um, in fact, James, I, I do have a question from one of our members that I'll talk to you on Friday in the pub and we'll see if it's worthy of an article. Sure. Awesome. So now that people know where they can give us feedback, it's time to say goodbye. So thank you for joining us. It's goodbye from me. And guys, say goodbye. Sayonara. Bye.